Welcome back to the Coder Corgi podcast. Today's guest, we have Paul Warren, who is a founder who is based in SF after spending six years nomading around the world. He has many varied interests, including fantasy and has founded in a bunch of different industries and topics. Welcome, Paul, to the show. Excited to be here. So, Paul, what kind of things inspire you? I think in terms of day-to-day, what gets me out of bed is a chronic fear of boredom. Mm. It's really hard when you look around and lose... You know the feeling like when you wake up three months into something and you're sudden, something that's been really interesting and exciting um, for a while and then, and then you sort of lose interest in it mm. overnight? Yeah. Um, and then the time period between that interesting thing and the next interesting thing, I'm really scared of that. I think I, I, I really try, um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it very well. It's something my wife is not terribly happy about because Mm. it means I'm constantly on the lookout for tons of things that I'm interested in. And it means I don't often spend enough time like paying attention to the here and the now I'm trying Oh, the grass is always greener on the other side Mm. kind of thing. Hmm. Where does your interest from the initial thing come from and how does it dissipate? Yeah, I I think for me, it's usually not so much about um, coming up with new interests. And it's more about discovering something that I was probably interested in all along. Um, And so I think a lot of it, for me, my my life philosophy for a lot of the past 10 years or so has been try a bunch of stuff, pay attention to how you feel. If you like it, do more of it. If you don't like it, do less of it. Mm. Um, And then you just have some building blocks that you can use to piece together a life um, and a lifestyle that that you want. Um, And so for me, I discover a lot of my interests um, by trying to inject a bunch of novelty and spontaneity into my life. Um, A lot of travel, was that was a big part of why I left to go travel around, um, was because in college, I met a ton of people that had such interesting lives, and I was like, my God, there's so much out there um, that, that I haven't really experienced, and I'm going to go try it all. Um, so I went to go try as, as much as I could. Um, so I, at this point, I'm one of those, like, I've tried a little bit of a lot of things. Mm. Hmm. What are some strategies that kind of increase the effectiveness or efficiency of this injecting novelty? Yeah, I think... A large part of it has been um, there's a million different things that you can always experiment with next. And so being con- being intentional about choosing to experiment with the things that give you skills or other resources that compound. Mm. Um, that was a long sentence. The keyword in there was compound, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if, if I do this one thing and it makes all the other stuff down the line much easier to try out, that's the thing I'm going to try to do f- first more mm. so than anything else. It's like transferable skills or exponential personal growth. Exactly, exactly. And, and a lot of that comes from... If, if I don't wake up every two months or so and feel like I'm a noticeably different person, mm. I get uncomfortable. It's like the, like the feeling you get if you like don't brush your teeth once or twice and you're mm. like, you know, it kind of feels grungy and you're not really happy with it. It's the same kind of thing for me if, if I don't feel that personal growth. Um, it's not healthy. Mm. Um, it's it's not, not a way that I would choose to maybe live my life. It's not a way that I would recommend other people live their life, but it is the way that I seem to be wired. Um, and I think a lot of my own personal happiness comes from understanding 
who I am in a way that I don't necessarily have that much control over and then trying to build my lifestyle around me, myself. Mm. Um, and of course, chipping away at, at, you know, and heading in the direction of who I want to be. That I think that having like a clear path to improvement is, is pretty important as well. Mm, a clear path to improvement and feeling different as kind of like milestones yeah. along the way. What does that feel like, feeling different? Oh man, sometimes it's, it's often really emotional. Like for, for a lot of um, high school and college, I was, I was a bit too extreme of a workaholic and I was a bit too much of a, like a, to the point, you know, very, uh, I, I read a bunch about radical honesty um, mm. and I, I sort of implemented it uh, in a way that didn't really consider other people's feelings that much. <laughs> um, and so there was this moment a few years after I, I dropped out of Stanford and I went to go travel around. Um, there was this moment where I, I went to this program in Mongolia and some of the other volunteer teachers there told me that I was a nice person and I literally cried and I don't cry much. I like, I, you know, like maybe once or twice a year kind of thing, but it, it just hit me because I realized that since elementary school, people have used many words to describe me, but they never use the word nice. And so when somebody describes you in a way that's new, that like, that hits you, that hits you hard. Mm -hmm. That hit me hard. That hit me really hard. To be described in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think there's, it's really easy for me to get in my own head and have my own mental model of who I am and how I act. Mm -hmm. But I, you do end up, humans are naturally wired for this. Um, and you do end up having to rely on other people, on external signals, you know, and, and it's not healthy to have that be the only source of knowledge about yourself or confidence or anything. Mm. You know, like there's, there's a bunch of people who work really hard because they feel like if they're not producing value through work, they're not, they don't have any worth as human beings. That's a rat race. That usually does not end well because when work goes poorly, because it always goes poorly at some point, that really knocks them for a loop. Mm. Um, I think for me, having this like core foundational sense of who I am and introspection and just paying attention to my emotions um, and, and a lot of paying attention to emotions, like practically speaking, um, it's, it's really about paying attention to like your physiological things, right? Like I can tell how much sleep deprivation is affecting me by how many typos are in my email drafts. Mm. You know, I can tell how interested I am in something by paying attention to whether my body language is like pointed towards the door, you know, or if I start tapping out of out of a lack of interest. Hmm. Um, and so I, I it, it, a lot of it was me sort of putting myself from the perspective of like, I'm at the poker table. I'm somebody else. I'm observing the human being called Paul Warren. What are his tells? How do I know what he's thinking? How do I know what he's feeling? Like, what are, what are the externally obvious signals? Um, and then it turns out, like, just something as simple as, like, are you smiling? Hmm. Right? You know, if, you, if, if, you, if you're smiling unprompted, like, you're not forcing yourself to smile, then you're probably pretty happy. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody ever told me that you could just, like, your emotions manifest in physiological and physical things. Hmm. You know, so it was, it was a pretty good hack, I think, for figuring out um, how I was feeling in certain situations. Oh, and the other way around, like physiological signs are used by your brain to kind of interpret what's going on. Right? There, there's that study where they gave people like a pill and they mm -hmm. told some people it'll make them anxious and told some people it'll make them energized. It was mm -hmm. like a caffeine pill. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the people who are like kind of told what to feel, kind of like 
interpreted the same physiological sign more mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. Uh, but the physiological sign is like still kind of like the basis. Yep. Exactly. That 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 makes total sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that sounds like a really good study. Mm-hmm. So I, I think like one of the teachings of Vipassana too is also just observing the physiological mm-hmm. signs, like discomfort or like if you feel angry or when you feel bored. How does that manifest? Exactly. Exactly. It was really freaky when in my first Vipassana, so far first and only, although I'm excited for my second one coming up soon, um, when they talked about how your thought was just another type of stimulus. Oh, and for those who don't know, a Vipassana retreat is a 10-day silent retreat. Exactly, yeah. Pretty pretty intense, live like a monk, you know, eight hours of meditation a day. Um, and, and it was um, being able, that was a great example of one of those times where after the retreat, there was a qualitative difference in my ability to notice how I was reacting to external stimulus. Mm. Like, um, I remember one moment in my first retreat, it sounds really simple when you say it out loud, but there was a, like a truck that honked its horn and there was a noticeable gap for me between me hearing the sound of the horn honking and my body like jumping, Mm. you know, jumping in surprise. Um, and that was not like a conscious reaction. It was one of those like startlement, you know, reactions. Mm. And I just observing it from stimulus, pause, like involuntary reflex, um, made me realize that actually that happens a heck of a lot. Um, Yeah. Yeah, That's fascinating. The gap between mm -hmm. the, the action and the reaction. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that it all, it's not something that I had conscious control over. Mm. Um, and then when you start paying attention to daily life, like somebody will say something and you'll just, you can, you know, I can often tell not often as quickly as my wife would like, but I can often tell when I'm getting defensive mm. about a topic, right? Somebody says something, there's a little pause and I'm like, immediately I, my brain starts coming up with justification. Oh, you're wrong. And these things, and I'm, you know, here's some debate techniques for how I'm going to win this <laughs> argument when yeah. really that's usually not a productive response to, to anything, especially negative criticism. Yeah. I remember at my work meeting today, like someone pointed out something and I had like that gap where I, I felt a bit defensive. And then I, like, noticed I was being defensive. I still, like, kind of said a defensive thing. I'm like, Mm -hmm. hmm, it's interesting. Exactly. Because even, even, you know, once once you know about it, once you observe it in yourself, I think that's a really critical step. Mm-hmm. But actually acting on it, like changing your responses. Breaking the pattern. Breaking yeah. the pattern. That's way, that's actually also a really hard part mm. of it. Yeah, there is no easy part, sadly. It's all, it's all difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something you mentioned before I wanted to double click on, but I don't quite remember what it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure I'll come sure. up later. Yeah, yeah, we've covered lots of topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it related to feeling different. Uh, there was something you said. Um, oh, how people describe you. I yeah. thought it was interesting how uh, you were like kind of used the analogy of being at the poker table looking at your tells, kind mm-hmm. of uh, outside looking in as mm-hmm. opposed to kind of inside looking out. And, exactly. Uh, I wonder why you use like the metaphor of the poker table because the mm-hmm. poker table is like a context where it is more adversarial where mm-hmm. you want to actively hide uh, or like change how you express yourself in certain ways. Yeah. I think for me, there's something about the competitive nature. Um, so first note, especially as I've been traveling a bunch, I actually don't play poker too mm-hmm. much. I'd like to get back into it. Um, 
but it's it, it always comes up to me when I think about you have smart people, there's real money on the line, mm-hmm. and they're trying their hardest to understand the other person. Because I think what often happens, you know, when you're chatting with a friend casually or a family member, um, people want to help, but they don't they don't really take it seriously. And poker players, they do they do there are many things, but they take poker pretty seriously mm, usually. Yes. And so I think that that level of rigor is what I what I'm really getting at. And I think that's that level of rigor is really important, be, and and the external observations are really important because we we by default spend a bunch of time in our heads mm. thinking about ourselves, mm. and it's only when you know if, if it's not a natural inclination, it's really easy to forget that there are very obvious low hanging fruit physical tells that can tell you a lot about how you're feeling in a given situation if you just had a little bit more body awareness, especially mm, for knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, one of my favorite things while I was traveling was um, my wife and I, we went to uh, Costa Rica to a massage therapy school, and we spent about four months um, studying, like, you know, many hours a week. Um, the total was, like, 600 hours or something. It was for people who came back to the States to become licensed massage therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big unexpected benefits of just getting and giving massages all day, every day, for four months was being much more in tune with my body. Your own body. Yeah, because as somebody who spends a lot of time escaping, whether it's through work, on the laptop, whether it's through the books that I read, um, it was really, whenever, you know, people, like, especially a lot of athletes will tell you, like, oh, just just pay attention to how you feel. Like, you know, when I learned dance, the dance teacher would be like, that move just is wrong. Like, mm-hmm. just feel the flow. And I'm, that was always really frustrating because I'm like, how do, you, how do you feel the flow? Like, what does that mean? Um, And it turns out body awareness is an actual thing. And it's Mm. something that just if you do deliberate practice, you can get better at it. Like mind-body connection? Mind-body connection. It turns out that helps you with hand-eye, you know, with coordination. Mm. It turns out that helps you pick up new sports and hobbies. You know, it turns out that helps you, again, pay attention to your own physical tells. Um, Because if, you know, if if you view yourself as a disembodied mind and your mm. body is the vehicle to just get around the world, um, you're losing out on a lot of what drives a lot of information. Mm. That's really, that can be really helpful. It sounds like you really thought about consciously developing that while at the massage therapy school. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, following the, the philosophy I mentioned earlier of try a bunch of stuff, do more of what you like, that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something I expected to get out of the massage therapy experience, but it was something that happened. It was a weird, it was a weird change in my life. Um, And so it's something that I spent a lot of time, especially after the camp, like reflecting on and figuring out how did this, why did I enjoy this experience so much? Like what made this experience different from all the other stuff that I've tried that I didn't like as much? Interesting. And one of the answers was I came away with, actual body awareness mm-hmm. um and and so things like yoga poses just were easier I've like and i was like how the heck does a massage camp like help me do better at yoga um and so i, I love seeing those kinds of like i did a thing because i expected x but then it turns out there were these yz benefits um and figuring out tracing the chain of events is, is a is a hobby of mine mm. Have you ever tried anything like a contact improv or acro yoga or aerial or similar? I've I've done I've done I've done a lot social dance I'd mm. put in that category as well. Um, 
for my for my wedding, um, my wife and I we had to postpone the wedding due to COVID, so we never ended up doing you know doing this in front of other people. But we we actually got a choreographer and choreographed a like a full on like three four minute song, wow. um, and so we spent about six months, maybe twenty hours a week, um, learning modern ballet, learning ballet, classical ballet, and then modern dance. Um, and so contact improv and partner dancing and, you know, and social dancing, waltz and tango and all of that, mm. um, they all kind of fall in that sparring was another one. Um, so I, I used to do jujitsu a lot mm. before some injuries and rolling the, the jujitsu sparring um, also fits in that category. Yeah. I love all of those. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Hmm. Wow. You tried like so many different things. <laughs> jiu-jitsu, social dancing, massage therapy. Yeah, it's really quite exciting. It's it's been it's it's interest it's challenging because you do there. It's hard to get good at something, and mm. so and the best way to try something new is usually to find somebody who's done it for a while and then go with them. Mm. And so one of one of the things that I one of my weird tricks that I found was really helpful is I, I assume I might be interested in everything. And I might one of my ways that I prioritize what to try next, in addition to the compounding we talked about earlier, is how good of a teacher do I have access to? Hmm. So, as an example, yesterday um, a person I'm couch surfing with said, "Let's go climbing." I haven't been climbing in eight years. Um, turns out they do V8s, you know, wow. up to V10s regularly, um, and so we just went climbing at the climbing gym, and it was compared to going with other beginners and people of my same skill level, it was a much faster experience at mm. like challenging myself to go higher and figuring out how to do certain, certain routes. Um, ballet was the same, you know, a big part of why my wife was really into ballet and a big part of why we spent so much time on it was because we had a, a tutor, a teacher over in Korea who was like, he's a guy who teaches active members of the Korea national ballet troupe. Oh, wow. Um, and he used to be like one of their top dancers as well. And so he's like, honestly feels like he could be one of the, the top ballet teachers in all of South Korea. Um, and we just had, we just he lived 10 minutes away and we went to his studio, multiple private lessons a day. And it, it was, it was really effective mm. um, compared to like, I then did a ballet lesson, you know, back in the States and I went to, you know, some like felt like a mom and pop dance studio and there were 30 other people in the class and it was nowhere, you know, nowhere near the level of an, of instruction. Um, so you just don't get as, you know, a lot of people will try an activity and just hate it. And it's because they did like they chose a bad studio or they didn't get a good teacher or like mm. there was a big they didn't get like they didn't get private the, instruction, perhaps. Exactly. The attention from somebody who's experienced who actually cares about you trying to have a good experience. Mm. Sounds like one of the big appeal of being a nomad is having access to these teachers. There's like lots of stories about people learning from like world class people that you wouldn't be able to find in an accessible way in like the US. Exactly, for sure. And and, and a big part of that there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One big important reason is money, mm, right? Is yeah. is like things in Korea are just cheaper than in the states. Things in Thailand are cheaper than in Korea. Things in India are cheaper than in Thailand. Like, you know, and so there's there's a lot of you can for a similar amount of money that maybe you can afford to pay in the states, the quality of the instruction you can get is way higher mm. in certain parts of the world. That's one important thing. But the other important thing is I think 
the the biggest benefit of traveling for me has been in affecting my headspace, my mindset, like how I approach life. And I notice this in a lot of other travelers, um, especially people who go on more extended things. Uh, what I what I basically ask myself is every couple of months I would say to myself I'd, I'd make it a deliberate practice. I'd sit down and I would say, I can go anywhere in the world. I can do anything I want. Where do I want to go? Like, what do I want to do? Like, let me make a list of a bunch of things, and then I'll just start at the top and work my way down. Mm. And and a lot of people when they travel, they give themselves kind of permission to live life wow. in a new and unusual wow. way, mm-hmm. and that often translates into people trying to ask themselves, like, what do I want to do? Like, how do I want to how do I want to have fun? Like, I have a you know I have three days in wow. in Thailand. Uh, let me go try Muay Thai. Mm. Um, for the first time, like why not? It's a, it's a cool thing to do that I'm not going to normally do, and and the thing, but the thing is, they could totally try like Muay Thai back home. Like there's right. you know world champion Muay Thai folks in every major city and you know in 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 the world, and and so like there's there's some really good teachers, but they don't they don't let themselves look for them. They don't let, hmm. let them. They're not open to the opportunities. They're not open to the like. Oh, you want to go climbing? Ah, sorry, I'm so busy with work. You know, I guess I'm not going to go climbing. Um, and then you never find out that the that the guy you're going climbing with was done up to V10. Wow. Um, hmm. Hmm. So it kind of opens your mind up to seeing these opportunities around you instead of just like focusing on it. Oh, uh, work and kind of like the conventional ways of thinking about flexibility. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of people will just get home from work and they're very tired and they don't have the energy and so they end up staying and they do the easy, convenient thing. Yeah. And the easy, convenient thing is not usually memorable. Right. It's not usually something, it's not usually compounding. It's not usually something that helps you in, live a more meaningful and happy life. Right. It's like, oh, I can always do this thing later. I, I want to rest now. Whereas when you're in the new environment, the, the novelty kind of pulls you and then you're like, okay, how am I going to get this chance again? Exactly. You treasure it more. Exactly. So, so one of my big things I did while nomading is whenever I felt myself in a bit of a rut mentally, I would just move cities. I would just move locations. I would just be like, oh, I've had enough of hiking in the Caucasus Mountains. Like, let me go fly to Budapest. Um, you know, and, and being able to... It's one of my easiest hacks of, like, when you feel lost and you're not really sure what to do, just pushing yourself into a totally new environment I somehow that just for me certainly and for a lot of other people i've met while traveling makes a really big difference it resets you resets your headspace it's like a new opportunity to look at things with fresh eyes um, i've seen people you know you you sit down you're laser focused on work you're grinding day in day out you go on a one-week vacation you know to a new place you realize wow I've been miserable this whole time. I've been miserable for six months. I hate my job. You know, I don't want to don't want to do this. Um, and then I've seen those people come back, and often they slide back into the grind because it's difficult to make major life changes. But some people who go traveling and have these new experiences, they'll come back and it'll it'll make them make some major changes. They'll quit their job. They'll break up with their significant other. Or ask, they'll ask out that person that they've been wanting to ask out for a while. They'll take that risk. Um, they'll take the risk. Mm. Hmm. Uh, you're currently SF-based. What made you decide to stop nomading? And how are you going to continuing getting the benefits? Yeah, that's a great question. So... 
and why I stopped nomading was really because of loneliness. Mm. And that's one of the things. So as you travel around, you meet a ton of people, but you don't really stay in touch with them mm. most of the time, especially because everybody's so geographically distributed. You know, you meet somebody, it's like a passing, you know, a passing thing. Um, and, and what that what that meant is that I hadn't really had any new friendships, like deep, meaningful friendships, like the kind of people that I was like wanted to invite to my wedding or that I would you know plan, expect to stay in touch with 10 years mm. down the line um, since I almost since I started nomadic. Um, and, and especially after coming out of college, which is a really great place to me to make a bunch of good friendships really mm. quickly. Um, after a few years, like not having, not having that, like a, a pillar of stability in terms of like a new social growth, um, really gets to you. Cause one of the things for me is a really good mental model is that there's no neutral. Things are usually either getting better or they're getting worse. Mm. And so for your social life, if you don't have new people that you're meeting pretty regularly, cause as you just grow up and grow older and you know have different partners or for me you know when we got a kid when we had a kid for example um, who you are changes and who you want to spend time with changes and so if you don't have new people that are a good fit for who you are now you, you sort of you lose touch with some of the old people nobody's coming in to replace mm. it your social life's on a decline and for me, after years and years of, of being on the decline, I said, no, that's, that's not healthy. It's not good. I want to I want to be around my tribe in person much more. Hmm. Um, so I kind of made little pins on a map and I said, where are the people that I, I feel closest to? Where are they based? And the answer is most people were clustered in the Bay Area um, doing other startup stuff. And so that's why I decided to come back here. Mm. It's kind of your stage of life shifted where you have a... Uh, more kind of stable identity and you want to be around people who consistently enforce the identity. Yeah, yeah. And and, and uh, something I mentioned earlier is it's, it's less about changing my identity and more about discovering mm. who I really was all along. Ah. So for example, before I, I dropped out of, of Stanford, I eventually went back and finished my degree, so I probably shouldn't say dropped out. Um, but, but before I, I left... I was pretty sure I wanted to be based in the Bay Area and I wanted to do tech startups. Huh. And then after six years of nomading around the world, trying everything and anything that I could imagine, I want to be based in San Francisco Bay Area and I want to be doing tech startups. Hmm. Um, the key, to, so what I'm doing, I'm rereading like blog posts I wrote like when I decided to start my, my journey around the world. Um, and a lot of my thinking is the same. Like a lot of the fundamentals and the philosophy is the same. The key difference is I have a lot more confidence in who I am. I have a lot more like, actually, I'm not just saying that I'm not just like swept up by the hype. I'm not doing startups because it's, you know, the thing that everybody is doing when you're Stanford CS. Um, I'm doing it because I've tried working in all sorts of different cultures and work environments and team sizes. And actually the extremely small, you know, zero to one stage and you have a very small team and tons of responsibility and lots of chaos and wear many hats is something I significantly prefer compared to the other jobs. Like, for example, the nine to five, here's your three bullet point responsibilities, you know, work on those and you don't need to do, you know, work four hours a day, two hours a day if you want. Like a lot of folks at, you know, Google and other big tech firms um, end up doing. The, the theme of tech startups is one that's prevailed through your travels. 
Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it started because I, I was paying for all my travels myself and it was expensive. It was, you know, the budgets I put together were not very realistic, I think. <laughs> um, especially when you move from, you know, different places. Like if I'm, if I spend, I spent two months in extremely rural India mm-hmm. and I put together a budget that I was going to do for New York City. But then I actually moved to New York City for a little bit. It was not my budget from rural India did not did not last you know like a week in in uh, in Manhattan, um, and so I think I think a lot of um, yeah just a lot of a lot of the nomad and going back to your question of of you had a second part to it how am I going to get the benefits that's something I'm still I'm still wrestling with. Um, because a lot of the benefits of nomading are are being able to go anywhere and do anything you want. Mm. And as as I got older, I got married. You know, we have a kid now. My son is sixteen months old. Um, those are anchors. They're you know they're anchors. I chose. They're constraints. I chose. I chose to get married. I chose to have a kid now. Um, it, it was worth it. But it is still a constraint. It does still affect things. So my freedom of movement has really has really. Um, has really been challenged. I'm hoping that by living in the Bay Area, um, I'm hoping that I can still have this. I can, you know, go anywhere in the world and do anything I want. Where do I want to be? San Francisco. What's the primary thing I want to be doing? Tech startups. You know, what are all my secondary and tertiary activities like climbing with friends and and those those new things that I've done in the past? I know I enjoy. I want to go back to them. Um, I'm hoping that I can maintain that kind of. I'll do what I want when I want to do it, um, lifestyle, even after being settled back here. Mm. But who knows? We'll see. I'm only a few days into living back in San Francisco. Um, so ask me again in a few months, and, and we'll see how it's going. A few days? When did you get here? I think about three days ago. Wow. Yeah. How's the jet lag? It was it, The jet lag from Asia to USA is usually pretty bad. But one of the things I tell people who deal who have sleep problems is once you have a kid, you can sleep anywhere <laughs> at any time. Jet lag does not bother me. I used to never be able to sleep on planes. I can sleep. I slept the entire plane right over. Wow. I used to have jet lag and not be able to go to sleep at a time. I can go to sleep whenever I want. <laughs> it's a wonderful superpower. <laughs> what was it like uh, having like th- this kid? Because you, you were traveling uh, mm-hmm. the first 16 months of your kid's life as well. What was that like? We were we were traveling for most of it. We we did go back to Korea. My wife is from Korea, so I hesitate to call it traveling so much um, for the pregnancies. And then for the first hundred days of the kid's life, we were pretty stationary. But as soon as as soon as my son turned a hundred days old, we we jetted off for about six months. Then a few more months in Korea. We just came back from like two months in New Zealand. You know, a week in Guam to visit a friend's wedding. Um, my wife is in Thailand right now with the with our son. Um, traveling with a kid is hard. It's logistically complicated. It is totally doable, but it you have to plan more. You have to bring more stuff. You know, like I used to just backpack. Like the backpack that I'm I'm wearing now that I brought here. Um, this backpack actually is one of the only things that I brought while I was traveling to so many countries. Wow. Um, but now I, now I push, you know, carts of five, diff- five suitcases around <laughs> the airport um, when I travel. We, you know, we've, we used to go, like I said, a few months in rural India and many other places that we wouldn't necessarily want to take our kid now. Mm. Um, 
but now we tend to go on the more uh, higher end, let's say. So, like, we went on, you know, some honeymoons to the Maldives and a place in Bali for a while. Um, like, so the type of travel that we have to do in order for it to be comfortable with the kid, it's different. Mm. We're still traveling, but the type of traveling is not something the me of five years ago would recognize. It's yeah. a more luxurious, upgraded. Often, yeah, that's how we have to. That's how we have to do it. And it's not. It's not. It's not necessarily a requirement. Like you can budget travel with the kid, but everything has trade-offs. And for us. For me, because I, I keep trying to work remotely. Like, if you have, you know, you have the wife and the kid. You're traveling to new places all the time. You know, you're working with for startups remotely, which means you're working weird hours at, at odd times, especially when you're in weird time zones. Mm -hmm. um, uh, money is one of those things. You really can trade money for time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found myself doing for a lot of when when we were traveling with my kid. You know, throwing money at problems to make them go away. Mm -hmm. A good approach. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It works if you're fortunate enough to work in uh, tech startups and such, and make oh, some yes. money that way. Mm -hmm. uh, taking a taking a step back, how do you view your life trajectory uh, from a like? If you imagine it's like a line, and you're a dot in the center, and your past on the left, and future's on the right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I hope I hope my dot is not in the center. I want to be a bit more exponential. <laughs> than that one of my I, I think it's a paul graham quote is you should try to have everything you do make everything that came before it look like a footnote mm. and i really i really like that it's yeah. really hard of course to continue exponentially leveling up nice. like that and a large part of the way that i've tried to do that is just by moving into different industries mm. a bunch um i've i think for me um what matters even more than the shape of the curve on that graph is what dimension of your life you're graphing. Mm. Um, and so I would put things like, you know, you can get quantitative on it. I don't recommend this, but you can get quantitative and you can focus on net worth. Mm -hmm. Some people really focus on that, especially folks who end up in finance over in New York City. You can focus on um, the quality of your closest relationships. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I could make a little plot of like how strong my relationship with my wife is because it's something that we've spent years and years building on. Um, you can focus on, uh, some people focus on external reputation. I've never, I've never enjoyed focusing on that too much. Mm. Um, it's something I'm always a little uncomfortable with. Um, you can... So, so depending on the dimension of life, my graph will look pretty different, I think. Hmm. I do think in general, like I said, I want things that I view as good. I want to be exponentially better in the future. Things that I view as bad, I want to go down to, you know, asymptotically approach zero. Mm, well put. Yeah. How do you want to be described in like a hundred years by the people who remember <sighs> you? Yeah. I, I struggle with questions of legacy a lot um, because, you know, a hundred years, it, it matters. But, you know, add another zero, how many people are going to remember me in a thousand years? Add another zero, 10,000 years. You know, you know what humanity was like 10,000 years ago? The chances of anybody remembering anything about anybody alive now 
10,000 years, 50,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years from now. <sighs> Their names might not be remembered, but the values and perhaps a ripple on. I, there will definitely be an impact. There will definitely be ripples that exist, but it's not something I think that people are going to be known for. Hmm. And so I think for me, um, in terms of crafting a legacy, um, that's actually something I've, I've pretty consciously snoozed hmm. until later in my life. I say, I say to myself, I want to figure out who I am and I want to live true to myself and I hope I'm a good person. So I hope that involves making the world a better place, helping other people, leaving folks better than they were when I first found them. Mm-hmm. And I think if I live true to myself for a while, I'm hoping that's good enough. I'm hoping that I'll wake up in a decade or three and be like, just by living the life that I wanted to live without putting much conscious effort into shaping a legacy, I'm hoping that the ripples I leave in history will be good. What does living true to yourself look like in the next few years? I think um, a lot of it, making sure this transition from nomading and being home-based out of a lot of South Korea, where my wife is from, we spent a lot of time there, um, transitioning from that to San Francisco, to life in America, um, and having that be as smooth as possible for my wife and my kid, I think that that's a big deal because... Moving to San Francisco is a pretty selfish thing that I asked of my wife. I basically said, hey, can you leave all your friends and family that you've known for all your life behind and just come start over again, new, for me? And it's not something that's fair of me to ask, but I asked it anyway, and she's gracious enough that she's willing to do it. But I I think in terms of living true to myself, I really want to be able to have a good balance between focusing on my work, that aspect of my life, which is really important to me, focusing on my family, another aspect that's really important to me, um, and having a good balance between the two. I think if I, in other words, if I want to be able to make it so that I can do the startup work I enjoy and still feel like I'm I'm a good husband or a good father, that's really important to me over the next couple of years. Mm, That's great, having that priority on the relationships. Yeah, because a lot of what I do when I when I get a little too workaholic or when I'm in between, you know, things and deciding what I want to do next is I'll go and I'll read books like When Breath Becomes Air or Being Mortal, you know, The Last Lecture, like things focused on death and dying. And, you know, people just it's it's kind of a cliche because it's true. When you're near the end of the life, people don't usually wish they'd worked more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when I'm I'm scared of dying alone. I'm scared of I'm scared of, you know. We mentioned a feeling of, of being of feeling different. Um, to me, I've struggled with a lot of life of not really feeling like I've belonged anywhere, like with any particular group of people. And that's a really shitty feeling, mm, like to not really yeah. feel like you have like a, a tribe of of people that like get you that and you get them and you just. And so, so I think for me, the times in my life where I have ignored relationships, I pay attention to my physical tells, it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not good for me mentally. It's not good for my headspace. Um, and so I think it's my natural tendency is to kind of not want to spend as much time with people that I care about because there's always pressing things to do 
work-wise. And so I try to be pretty conscious and intentional about proactively making time for friends and family and other aspects of social life. Mm. doesn't always work very well, <laughs> but I'm trying to do better every time, all the time. Yeah, it's great that you're paying so much consciousness and intention. Yeah, I think the word intention is, is pretty important. I think one of, my, one of the big things I wanted to do before my travels abroad was to spend less time reacting to my environment and then to spend more time proactively deciding what I wanted and then going after it, changing my environment based on what I wanted. Um, and that was, that was a really big mental shift because a lot of people, if you talk to them and you're like, you know, you go talk to some professors even, you're like, how did you get into your field of study? And they'll say, oh, well, I stumbled into it. There was this one opportunity for this one thing. And I'm like, do you enjoy your field of study? And they're like, enjoy? Like, what? No, not really. And, and you know, it, they, they did the easy and the convenient thing. And they just kept doing the easy, the path of least resistance. And so they ended up in a, in a life trajectory that's not what they really wanted. Mm. And that's something I'm afraid of. In term, you mentioned the graph of the life trajectory. I want to have a bit of control over what my curves look like. I want to be able to consciously choose, yes, this is the type of life I want to live. No, that's not the type of thing I want to prioritize in my life. I'm at a, you know, I'm on a stage where I do want to spend more time with my kids. I'm at a stage where I still want to spend time on startups. You know, at some point in five years, 10 years, um, I might want to revisit and have, you know, I track my time um, all the time, like on a minute by minute basis. Um, for, I've done it for a few years now. And so I, I use that as like kind of a proxy. I get a report every week. How much time did I spend on work? How much time did I spend on social? How much time did I spend on health? And, and so I, I try to be pretty conscious about, about how I'm spending my energy. How do you track your time and energy? How I track my time, an app called Toggle. Um, I have a, a thing working. I try to get too accurate within five minute resolutions. Um, the hard part of tracking time, uh, two parts of it. First one is coming up with a good taxonomy for activities. Mm. Um, the second one is getting in the habit of changing what is on your timer that's going on whenever you're changing activities. Mm. Um, for me, I turned it into a, a good, a positive thing. I use it to change my headspace. Like when I when I'm, for example, I go from one meeting to another meeting, maybe one meeting is work and one meeting is, let's say I'm calling my parents, which I need to do more of. Um, and, and so I, those are two different timers. And the, I've, I've programmed myself so that the act of changing the timer on the app on my phone puts me in the different headspace. Wow. I've reinforced that habit uh, years, years after years. If I want to get work done um, and I'm not really feeling it, let's say I'm, I'm wasting time browsing the internet, Sometimes I can just go in, I'll change my timer to work, and then I'll say, ah, well, since I have the timer going on work, I guess I should get some work done, and then I'll start working. Hold yourself accountable in that way. Exactly, exactly. Um, in terms of tracking energy, which is different from tracking time, hmm. that one's a lot harder. I haven't found a great way to systematically track it, um, other than just constantly have this ongoing background thread about how I'm feeling, you know, like what how I'm feeling in this moment, in this situation. Um, after every interaction, am I feeling more energetic, less energetic? You know, how excited am I about the things that are on the rest of my calendar for the day? Um, but it's not, it's not a, I don't have systems I'm happy with yet mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Ah, 
Wow, this is a very engaging, insightful conversation. Uh, oh, I appreciate. <laughs> I really that. appreciate mm-hmm. it. No, no, no. I appreciate that. I'm always happy to. I, I really one of my favorite quotes is by an author named Terry Pratchett, and it's "I find out what I think by listening to what I say." Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I opportunities like this, like just conversations like this, I think are really helpful because it forces me to articulate how I want to live my life. And it's a really good way for me to check myself um, and see how I'm living it. What's my, what's my OS for my own life? Mm. Do I want to make any changes? Are my old assumptions still valid? Um, and so I should really be thanking you for the opportunity to just monologue for so long about, about different aspects of my life philosophy. Oh, I'm happy to. That's the purpose of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I really like the theme of uh, discovering who you are and mm-hmm. living life on your own terms and discovering what those terms would look like as they shift and like feeling different in a way of gaining more insight into who you are. Exactly, exactly. A lot of people focus on wanting to change. They want something new. And I think that's, that's not how it usually happens. Like if you, you know, change is hard. What's easier is to figure out who you really are. And then, it, then you're just, you know, if you live true to yourself, your decisions become a lot more obvious and a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for having me yeah. on. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh.